Hi there, and welcome to this episode of the Love to Tell the Story podcast. I'm Michael Lowry, pastor of East Congregational United Church of Christ in Concord, New Hampshire. Everything we have and everything we are is a gift from God. But how much of ourselves could have been invested for the sake of God's kingdom, but wasn't? That's the question we're asking in today's message, which is based on Jesus' parable of the talents from Matthew 25, and it's entitled, An Invested Faith. And it begins with a parable of our own. A tale of two churches. An elderly woman passes away, and two churches in the community, which were actually located just down the street from one another, were notified by a lawyer's office in another state that both congregations had been named in the woman's will. Now, honestly, neither church really knew this woman all that well. She'd been away from the community for many, many years, and truth be told, few in either congregation would even have remembered her. But she'd grown up in one of those churches, and her late husband had been raised in the other. So every Christmas, she would send a poinsettia to each congregation. Every Easter, a lily. And now, there was to be a memorial gift. Probably not very much, the lawyer explained, as this had been a woman who'd lived simply, by rather modest means. Come to find out, however, the woman was also a rather shrewd investor because as the executors of her will went through her things, they discovered that nearly every little droy and cubby hole in her house was filled with account books and stock certificates. Her estate ended up being worth close to a million dollars. And since she had no other living relatives and relatively few other bequests, suddenly, these two little churches became the beneficiaries of several hundred thousand dollars each. Well, the first church knew just what to do with the money. Invest. Conservatively, of course, in keeping with the other investments in the church's endowment portfolio. It would be fiscally irresponsible to do otherwise, they reasoned. After all, they said, in this economy, the financial risks are just too great, and one must always take caution not to lose everything that you have. And besides, they said to the congregation, any interest income from the money, albeit small, would certainly benefit the church's work. It might even possibly save the church from financial ruin someday. You never know. Certainly, there were other projects around the church that needed to be done, but those could wait because this money should be put away, safe and sound for a rainy day. Just call the bank and get it taken care of, no problem at all. For the second church, however, the problems were just beginning. This congregation, it seemed, had become sharply divided over what to do about this gift. Some people were saying that the money ought to go to revitalize a senior citizen daycare program that had once been housed in the church. Others were convinced that it ought to serve as seed money for a youth outreach in the community. And yes, there was that group in the congregation who felt that the money ought to be properly invested 
So, they said, the interest income could provide an ongoing resource for the community's burgeoning soup kitchen. Suffice to say that opinions were many and emotions were running high. And truthfully, the issue was literally taking months to sort out. But finally, after much discussion and a fair amount of struggle, countless meetings on the subject, they came to the inescapable conclusion that they were never going to agree on any one recipient for the money they've been given. So they joyfully decided that certainly there was enough money to help everybody in a meaningful way. So start handing it out. As they say on TV, this is based on actual events. So I ask you now, what church do you think was good and trustworthy regarding the gift they've been given? Or maybe more to the point of it, given the same situation, what would you have done? Be honest now. Because actually, it's not all that easy a question to answer, is it? Because whereas we do admire that second church for its great generosity, we also, especially given the economy these days, tend to identify, do we not, with the first church in its prudence for dealing with that money. Even though we know as Christians our calling is to reach out to others in caring and loving ways, our very human nature tells us, play it safe, be careful. Now, maybe I'm wrong here. You can tell me after church. <laughs> But I suspect that most of us, if we were given that choice for ourselves in our own lives, we would probably choose to save and invest. Oh, make no mistake, we, we go out and spend some of it. I mean, who wouldn't? I mean, have you been thinking about that half billion dollar jackpot in Powerball? If you've been thinking about it, and if you win, I want to introduce you to the concept of tithing. <laughs> But, you know, it, if you had that kind of a windfall, you'd probably, you know, spend some of it, maybe give some of it away, but mostly you'd probably think about, okay, I'm going to put that money away for retirement, for our kids' education, for the inevitable rainy days that come along in life. I say that because... You and I both know it's that same kind of financial prudence in which so many of us have been raised. And moreover, it really is a big part of our generational history. And you see that all the time in the church. An old friend of mine used to say that growing up amid the Great Depression, he realized early on that you were never sure what you were going to have tomorrow. So you never dared put at risk that what you had today. That conviction, he said, stayed with him his whole life. And it informed just about every financial decision he ever made in his life, every gift he made, every pledge he made to the church. So, basically what we're saying here is it's all about being cautious and careful with that which we've been given. And really it just seems like good, wise, and even the faithful thing to do, right? So how is it then that in our text for this morning, Jesus' parable of the talents, 
when the master returns and all three of those servants are asked to give an accounting for what they have done with that which they've been entrusted, the master rails at the one-talent servant. You know, the one who very prudently hid his money in the ground for safekeeping. He rails at him for being wicked and lazy and worthless. And worst of all, why would this man ever end it by casting the servant into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth forever to dwell in darkness and torment, which surprisingly is where this particular parable of Jesus abruptly ends. I know, not the most uplifting verse you are ever going to read in the Gospels. And it's all the more disconcerting for the verse that precedes it, the one you heard from Gail earlier. For to all those who have, more will be given. But from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. That's pretty heavy stuff. And it's not really the kind of thing we we expect to hear from Jesus, even in the context of a parable. Especially when you consider that this story that Gail shared with us all starts out as a happy little tale of those good and trustworthy servants who double their master's money to get a good promotion and enter into the master's joy. No, in this story, celebration quickly shifts to judgment. And frankly, I think you'll agree with me when I say that, that it all comes off as a little unfair. Because, after all, what did this one-talent servant do wrong except to do what he thought was the wisest thing to do under the circumstances? To protect that which is valuable rather than take action that would most certainly risk losing it all. Well, let's assure those who heard Jesus tell this story for the first time, they had much the same reaction. It was, in fact, a fairly common practice at the time to bury valuable treasures and money, not only for the sake of security, but also liability. So for Jesus to suggest that the harsher judgment was to fall upon the one who, at least in their minds, had done the right thing, well, that was to say the least disturbing. Here's an interesting little fact. It was so disturbing to folks, in fact, that the early church historians tell us that there was an apocryphal, that is, false gospel, that circulated some hundred years after the resurrection. And in in that apocryphal gospel, this parable was actually revised, changed, so that instead of burying the single talent, the third servant had squandered his master's money with harlots and flute players. Says a whole lot for musicians, doesn't it? (laughs) Presumably, you see, the idea here was to justify the the master's harsh punishment, to make the behavior of the servant somehow worse than what it was. But in the end, that's not how the story goes. What we're left with here is this hard truth that judgment came not because this servant squandered his master's money, but because he failed to do anything with it at all. Well, the question, of course, is, as it is for all the parables of Jesus, 
is what does this story tell us about the kingdom of God? And might I add here, what does it tell about our place within that kingdom? Well, first off, it's interesting to note that this story comes amid several parables in Matthew that all have to do with keeping watch and being prepared for the kingdom's coming. Since, as Jesus says, we know neither the day or the hour of its arrival. In other words, the day is coming soon when the master is going to return and settle all accounts and you best be ready. And being ready is never about being passive or safe. Okay, so there's that. And of course, you know this, there's a clear aspect of stewardship that runs all through this story. Preachers like myself use this during stewardship season all the time. And it can be read as any of the so-called three T's. Time, talent, and treasure. In fact, though the English word we use in Scripture is talent, in biblical terms, what these three servants were, were given amounted to cold, hard cash, and a lot of it. A single talent in biblical times was worth more than 15 years' wages for an average laborer. So, 15 years. So whether it's five talents, two or one, we might as well be talking about a million dollars. That's how significant a thing it is that the master would actually trust this kind of money to his servants and how crucial it was that they would make good use of it. Well, likewise, when the kingdom comes, we need to be found having made good and bold use of all the resources that God has entrusted us. So there's that as well. But all that said, you know, I think that the message of this parable of the talents runs even more deeply than that. Now, as you recall, we, we, we spent a few weeks kind of looking at uh, the parable of the prodigal son, and we talked a lot there about the meaning of sin. And we, and we talked about sin, or the definition of sin, being that which separates us from God. Well, if that is true then it's also true, conversely, that that which brings us into closer relationship with God would be faith. And since everything we have in life belongs to God, since by grace and extravagant generosity we're given everything for the sake of the work of God's kingdom, it matters how we invest that faith. Truly, you see, each one of us has talents on loan from God, as it were, that in time, each of us will be called to give back. What this parable of Jesus tells us is that it's only when we're found trustworthy in a few things that we can ever expect to be put in charge of many things and enter into the joy of our master. In the end, you see, we will be held accountable for what God gives us, but not as much about squandering what we be giving as much as failing to do something with it. Friends, our Christian faith, everything that is connected to it is never meant to be hoarded or buried in the backyard of our lives. It is meant to be used for the sake of God and his kingdom. Our faithfulness needs to be boldly proclaimed in both word and with everything we have and everything we are. I wonder, friends, how often you and I hold back from that. 
You know, what's interesting is that the reason given by the third servant for hiding that one talent away was in fact fear. Fear of the risk, fear of failure, fear of the master's retribution if he ended up losing the money. This man was paralyzed by his fear and ultimately it was his fear that was his undoing. And it begs the question of how often we have let fear trump our faithfulness. How many times we've opted to let God's gifts remain buried and hidden for fear of the risk of failure or embarrassment or persecution. I wonder how much of ourselves could have or should have been invested for the sake of God's kingdom, but wasn't, all because we were afraid we might somehow, some way fall on our faith. <laughs> that this happens, you know, is tragic. For as Victor Pence has written, one of the great truths that pervade the Bible is that only the life of risk and faith is worth living. If you are not willing to risk, you will never make a new friend. If you are not willing to risk, you will never fall in love. If you are not willing to risk, you will never learn a new dance step or go into business. Likewise, Pence writes, you will never know the fullness of the Christian life unless you step out in faith and in trust. In this story of the three servants and the talents with which, that they've been given, Jesus is asking each one of us to come to grips with what it means to truly invest in our faith. Yes, time, talent, and treasure does have something to do with that, but it's something much bigger, as I said before. What it is to truly invest our faith. See, God has given us an important responsibility to honor the investment God has made in us and to make a commitment to him, to his people, to his work, to his church, to take the many gifts God has given us and use them both wisely, yes, but also boldly, investing and reinvesting spiritual capital for the sake of his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And while that might probably most certainly will involve some risk. More often than not, it's the risk that will bring a joy and a peace unlike anything else the world can provide. Years ago, one summer during my college years, a group of us decided that we were going to go to a contra dance that was happening nearby. Now, admittedly, not a one of us had a clue as to what we were doing most especially me. We didn't know a line dance from a square dance, but it seemed like it might be fun, so hey, off we went. And even when we got there, we stood on the sidelines. It was like being in seventh grade all over again. We stood on the sidelines wondering if we really should risk embarrassing ourselves by joining in with the others. But eventually, encouraged by the regulars who were at that contra dance, with a great deal of trepidation, we stepped out into the dance floor. And you know what? We were horrible. <laughs> I mean, we were really, really bad. And try as we might as the evening wore on, it got no better. It finally got to the point, true story, where the caller leaned into his microphone and said, 
perhaps those young people should go get a glass of punch. <laughs> but I'll tell you something else. We had fun. We'd risk something of our dignity, no doubt. And we'd exposed a bit of our foolishness, but we'd reaped a harvest of laughter. We'd seized the moment. And in a very small, small way, that moment was a miracle. You see, friends, that's what happens when we are bold about investing our faith. Yes, it's risky. But the miracles we reap for the sake of our Lord and his kingdom far surpasses that risk. Beloved, if you take nothing else with you today, take this. We must never let fear from within or without ever tear us away from the work of God that he would have us do in this place, in our community, in our world, and everywhere. Because great things can happen when we trust God's purposes enough to invest on what we've been given. Great things can happen and the best thing of all is that we will share in the joy of our master, to be in the company of our Lord. So as we do, let us rejoice, and may our thanks be to God. Amen and amen. And that's the message entitled, An Invested Faith. It was recorded during our October the 23rd service of worship at East Congregational Church in Concord, New Hampshire, where we invite you to join us for worship every Sunday morning at 10 o'clock at the church on 51 Mountain Road. That's just off exit 16 of I-93 in Concord. I would love to have the chance to welcome you, and I know you'll be glad you came. Well, that's it for this episode of the Love to Tell the Story podcast. I thank you for listening today, and until next time, may God bless you with a great day every day. We'll talk to you soon.